Our text this morning is Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. If you'd open your Bibles there. Acts 27, verses 1 through 26. The topic, when all hope was ended, Paul stepped forward and began to lead the passengers, the prisoners, and the crew through the turbulent storm. The title of our message, Pastor of the Mediterranean at Hope's End. (laughs) And when it was decided that we should sail to the most beautiful island in the world, Italy. No, I made that up. That would be Sicily anyway, but they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go with his friends and receive care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Proceeding, uh, excuse me, passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocludon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Let's pray together. 
Lord, in the excitement of this story, I pray that we would not miss the fact that your servant Paul lived through this, uh, that he lived every moment of it, seeking you, clinging to you, hearing from you, and then becoming really the hero of this voyage, pointing men and women to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we don't really want to be heroes, but we do want to point men and women to Jesus Christ. When their lives are storm-tossed, Lord, as Jacob mentioned, we want them to be able to see that you are their foundation, you are their hope, and that you will bring them through that storm into eternal life. We pray for any that are here this morning, Lord, that maybe are non-believers, they don't know your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them as the risen Savior, the coming Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I'm not an expert, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn. You're probably familiar with those ads. I sometimes feel a little that way when as a Christian I give people answers or advice, except I'd have to say, well, I'm not an expert, but I did attend Calvary Chapel on Sunday. You know what I mean. The people you are around need help. They're struggling at home in their marriage or raising their children. They're struggling at work, not getting along with their bosses or coworkers. School isn't going very well. You give them answers and advice from God's word, Instead of listening to you tell them about Jesus, they'll listen to just about anyone who they perceive to be a real expert. It's no surprise that the centurion took the advice of the ship's owner and the ship's captain over that of the apostle Paul. They were the experts, but they turned out to be wrong, disastrously wrong. So today are many so-called and credentialed experts Many, if not most, of the things people need advice about are essentially spiritual or they have an important spiritual component. You are the expert if you know Jesus Christ. People may not listen, at least not initially, but in the deepest despair of their personal storm, they may need you in the end. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, be concerned for people who won't listen to the Lord speaking through you And number two, be compassionate towards people when they will listen to the Lord speaking through you. First of all, in verses 1 through 12, be concerned for people who won't listen to the Lord speaking through you. After two years of being held in protective custody, Paul had appealed his case to the highest court. He was finally Romeward bound. Luke uses twice as many words describing the voyage to Rome as he does explaining what happened when Paul got there. And it's a quick reminder to us that Jesus is in the journey as well as being your ultimate destination. Again, in verse 1 we read, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius. He was a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Luke, who is the author of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, and Aristarchus are the we of verse 1. Now it's been suggested by scholars that they may have accompanied Paul officially as his slaves. Paul was a prisoner of Rome. This was no pleasure cruise, although he did enjoy some freedom. In order to take anyone with him, they would have to be, by Roman law, scholars say, slaves of Paul's. And so I could see how that conversation went. 
Luke, Aristarchus, there in uh, Caesarea trying to minister to Paul, say, hey, you guys want to come to Rome with me? Sure, that sounds great. Uh, there's a catch. You have to travel with me as my slaves. You know, when you've been downgraded, you know, in, in kind of your fare, and you just, it, the accommodations aren't exactly what you thought they would be. And they go, oh, it's no problem. We'll come as your slaves. But we're not really your slaves, are we? And Paul says, eh, we'll see, I guess. You know, so I think he had some fun with it. But just the concept of it is great for me. I mean, here's two guys that are otherwise free, you know, Roman citizens. And, and uh, they want to accompany Paul to Rome. He says, you're going to have to come as the slave of a prisoner if you want to accompany me. And I'm sure both of those guys said, we're on it. We're there. Anything that we can do. We don't care what people think. We just want to be where God wants us to be. Uh, and, and many times, you know, in our service to the Lord, the Lord, not, you know, mostly because he loves us, will test us in those ways. Say, okay, you want to volunteer? You want to serve? Will you do it if these are the conditions, if this is the circumstance? Or does it have to be just your way? Uh, and gloriously, we're able to say, oh, Lord, it's a privilege to serve you. Uh, we'll be the slaves of a prisoner Anytime. And so in verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And so Paul was out on OR, his own recognizance. He was allowed to visit the Christians at Sidon who gave him provisions for his continuing journey. Then in verse 4, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Now, it was getting to be difficult sailing against winds that were contrary. Nevertheless, ships were still putting out. The Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy would be part of what was called the Roman grain fleet. The Roman author Lucian describes a Roman grain ship he saw in the Greek port of Piraeus, and he says this, what a tremendous ship it was, 180 feet long, 45 feet across, and 44 feet from the deepest part of the hold, the crew was like an army. I was talking to some of the Navy guys after first service, and they said it's roughly the size of a destroyer. And so this is a huge sailing vessel. Uh, I only mention that because sometimes we have a tendency to think in smaller terms when we uh, think about the ancient world. We think it was some kind of a little boat, and this was a huge, huge sailing vessel filled with grain and staffed or, or with a total of about 276 people on board. Now, though it was privately owned and operated, while contracted by Rome, it was subject to the centurion as he was the highest ranking government official. So in a minute, when he decides whether they're going to sail or not, that's why. It was his decision because he outranked everyone that was on that ship. Verse 7, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent, sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them. Let's stop there for just a minute. Now, you, you, you can't help but see, as we've been reading, that the conditions were worsening 
Every verse, it seems like there's some reference to how bad things were getting. The fast Luke mentioned was Yom Kippur, the annual day of atonement when all telephones ring. (laughs) Or yours. Uh, It was thus early in October. Ancient records reveal that the dangerous season for sailing was from September 14th until November 11th. That was the danger zone. Then after November 11th, all navigation on the open sea was discontinued until the following season. And so this was a very difficult time of year to sail. Uh, Boats were still going out, but it was considered uh, bad weather. And so in verse 10, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. This wasn't a prophecy because in the end, no lives were lost. It was Paul's reasonable advice based on his experience. Paul was a world traveler par excellence. It's been estimated he traveled more than 17,000 miles in his lifetime as a missionary. He certainly had traveled more than anyone else, probably including the ship's owner and captain. By the time of this voyage, he'd already been in three shipwrecks, and he says, giving his testimony, that he had spent a night and a day in the deep. In other words, he was probably clinging to driftwood or pieces of the broken up ship, bobbing up and down, waiting for the Coast Guard to come. Oh, wait a minute. Probably just waiting for the current to take him somewhere. Uh, And so Paul knew a little bit about sailing. Uh, He, you know, was a a leather worker and, and canvas maker, and he probably had made many sails in his canvas work, and we don't know anything, but he had been on a lot of boats in his day, and he said, guys, guys, we're in the middle of uh, the bad season. Don't you see how everywhere we've gone, we've had problems? And I, my wisdom is this. Nevertheless, verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Now the helmsman, the captain, and the ship's owner, and the majority advised to set sail. Off they sailed, and as we see, into this coming storm. Now, yes, these guys were experts in their field. It's what they did for a living. But that didn't mean they exercised reasonable judgment. Their motives were suspect. First of all, the ship owner undoubtedly wanted to ensure that his cargo arrived intact and unspoiled. I'm sure that Rome was not going to pay for rotten grain once it got to harbor. A lot could go wrong as it set wintering in the harbor. Some of you watch that show, Deadliest Catch. I love it. I'm absolutely seasick. I hate the ocean. I can't wait for heaven because there won't be any more ocean there. That's, that's what makes it heaven for me. I guess there's something, you know, to be said about looking out over the ocean, but the ocean scares me. Uh, anyway, there in the Deadliest Catch, you know, these guys, they're crab fishermen up, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And I remember one season when they, they, they held their crab in the hold too long, and when they offloaded it, about a third of their catch was dead. And so they obviously didn't get paid for dead crab. And so a ship owner 
is concerned about profit. And maybe his expertise is touched a little bit, his judgment in that area, because he needs to make a profit. The captain undoubtedly thought himself a capable seaman. He would not be upstaged by a traveler, much less an itinerant minister. I mean, if you're, uh, if you're a proud sea captain with some bravado, and this minister of the gospel comes in, so I don't think we should go. I've been through many storms, you know, and he tells, you know, these old salt stories and stuff like that. I remember the, the Eurocludon of 52, you know, and that kind of a thing. And I'm sure they had stories to tell. And there was a certain amount of, of pride involved and bravado, and so he was going to go for it. The majority didn't like the accommodations at Fairhavens. There were no in and outs at Fairhavens. Uh, archaeology has shown. Well, it would show that, wouldn't it, that there was no in and outs? That would be my conclusion at a dig there. Uh, but whether, it, you know, I mean, if you're a, a rough, tough, you know, merchant marine, uh, and, and they say, aha, you guys, we're going to have to spend the winter here in Fair Havens. Oh, no. No, we're not. There's no nightlife. They couldn't go clubbing. You know, there weren't any bars, those kinds of things. I mean, it, it, it's like... Uh, you know, we think now, we've lived here, you know, we've been here over 20 years, and many of you grew up here, and, and some of you think, wow, you know, we're, the, we're a big city now, Hanford. We've got our own mall and, and, you know, those kinds of things. You remember either when there was no mall or where there was the faux mall <laughs> that was, you know, thrifty. Uh, and then a few stores that attached themselves to thrifty like a mobile home or something, you know. <laughs> the whole thing was like one big mobile home. It was like, wow, let's go walk the mall. Oh, then what do you want to do? Uh, so, you know, but we think, you know, we've kind of grown up. We're, we're a bigger city until your friends come from Southern California and they, they think it's podunk USA. And they say, man, I could never live here. You know, you can't do this and you can't do that and all that, and, and I'm glad. Don't let them live here, you know. Go back to Southern California where you belong. But anyway, and so that's the idea. These guys said, hey, we're not spending the winter in fair havens. This isn't why I sail the open sea. You know, I, I'm not here to do macrame and stuff. I mean, these guys wanted better winter accommodations. Every great disaster movie reveals some ulterior motive usually greed on the part of the ship owner for putting someone's life at risk. You know, there's that moment when maybe, you know, somebody says, I don't think we should go. It's not really the time. Yes, we have to go or else I'm going to lose my profit and you're going to lose your job. And okay, we'll go. And then, of course, they hit the disaster. And those guys always die hard in those movies. Don't you love that? Anyway, it's a common plot theme because it's too often true. The experts have ulterior motives that affect their better judgment. Just recently, I can't remember which ones were involved, but um, you know, you and I think that American air carriers are top of the line being inspected every few minutes, don't you? Until a whole fleet gets shut down because they realize, oh, gee, were we supposed to inspect these airplanes? We're sorry, we haven't been doing that. And you think, wow, that's pretty serious. Years ago, when we would take missions trips, we were always going for the lowest possible fare. We were going to the Philippines a lot, and so we flew Philippine Airlines. Well, I'm not really that bright when it comes to flying. Uh, flying, I hate even worse than the ocean. Uh, and so, well, and then you've got the combination, flying over the ocean. I mean, 
I, I wonder if there must be a, a phobia for that, the flying over the ocean phobia. Uh, anyway, uh, so we're flying this aircraft, and, and we had a lot of problems every time we used Philippine Airlines. And by problems, I mean real problems, you know? Uh, and, and so um, somebody finally told me that foreign air carriers don't have the same high standards that American air carriers have. And then I realized that this airplane that I was flying, this old 747, had been purchased from an American airline after they were done with it. And this was the flagship of, you know, uh, of, of the Philippine airline and stuff. So we quit doing that. And then you find out that some of the Americans are cutting corners too. And, and it's just, it's that kind of a thing that's happening here with everybody but Paul. Paul says, I'm worried about the loss of life. And so the captain and the owner may have been concerned about their livelihood. The majority con were concerned about their temporary quality of life for the winter. Paul said, I'm concerned about the loss of lives. Now, as Christians, we look upon people who don't know the Lord, and we are concerned that they do not have eternal life. If they perish, they do so eternally. And eternal life isn't just about the future either. It's a quality of life here and now. We see people overly concerned about their livelihood, living only for this world and what it can offer. Too often they experience the loss of the things that really matter in life. Maybe they get where they're going, but they've lost so much along the way. The same is true of non-believers who are pursuing some worldly lifestyle. In the end, it's a loss of life because it doesn't fill the emptiness in the heart that only a relationship with God through Jesus Christ can satisfy. And so really, like Paul, we would look at non-believers and say, I'm concerned for your loss of life. If you're not a Christian, if you don't have eternal life, both in the future as a guarantee and right now as a quality of life, you're experiencing a loss of life. Your heart is not right with God. And, and, and so that's how we look at people who aren't saved. They're people who don't really know life. They don't really have life. They're living, they're soulishly active, but they don't really have life. And so we should look upon them with great concern for their loss of life. And in that regard, since we know the Lord, we are the experts. Now, secondly, in verses 13 through 26, we want to be compassionate towards people when they will listen to the Lord speaking through you. Paul, the prisoner and passenger, becomes Paul, the pilot of the ship, in their moment of greatest need. Tempest-tossed and all hope finally given up, they're ready to listen to him. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sail close by Crete. You don't have to be an expert to know how fast weather conditions can change. The soft wind meant nothing. I can't believe that the captain, the ship owner, some of the seamen had never had a situation where the wind was blowing softly, but then in a reasonable amount of time, it turned into a gale. Uh, you know, and any of you have lived in places where there are severe weather changes, dramatic weather changes, uh, you know this is the case. We were just up at a leadership retreat a few weeks ago uh, at Bass Lake in a cabin up there, and uh, no, no snow predicted for the weekend. Uh, I buy some, I've got, I drive some American car now that you can't put tire chains on. 
Have, have you experienced that? You know, you're getting ready, you've made all the deals and everything looks good and all that, and then at the end they hand you this paper that says, you can't put chains or cables on your car or it'll ruin the car. Well, what are you supposed to do? Don't go to the snow. Okay, all right. So I'm I got crazy about the weather, you know. What are you gonna do? Is it gonna snow, you know? And, and, and do I have to borrow a tank or what do I need to do, you know? And we used to live in the snow. I understand snow, and so I, I'm reasonably concerned about it. And so we're up there, beautiful weekend. All of a sudden, it starts to snow about three hours before we're supposed to leave. And uh, so I'm looking out there, you know, and, and uh, it's not sticking, you know, to anything. Then all of a sudden, it starts sticking to the, to the ground, but not to the street. And I thought, you know, I'm getting out of here. All the guys would start making fun of me, you know, you're a wimp you know, and stuff, and so I'm leaving, you know, I'll just, I'm gonna wimp out. So I drive up this street, and as soon as I get to the top, man, it's like a blizzard up there. It's like crazy up there, you know, and I it just, we barely made it out with our lives. <laughs> All right, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but had we stayed a little bit longer, I don't know if we would have made it without a tow, and so, I mean, the weather just changes, and so he goes, oh, look, the wind's blowing soft. Let's take our destroyer-length crane ship out into the Mediterranean into the soft wind. Uh, it's crazy. Now, when we share about Jesus, people tend to look at their lives and see a soft wind blowing rather than the approaching storm. They don't see their need at the time. And so they continue along, pursuing their livelihood and their lifestyle, when all the while they are very definitely heading into treacherous situations that only Jesus Christ can navigate. Even if a person has relatively smooth sailing through their natural life, they're heading into a treacherous, disastrous situation at the end of their life when they face death when they face death because it's an enemy that can only be dealt with by Jesus Christ. And so at some point, a terrible storm is coming. Normally, a lot of other storms come as well, a lot of other storms, whether they're personal illnesses or personal losses or whatever they may be, where people, though the soft wind is blowing now, they're going to need your advice. And so in verse 14, not long after, a tempestuous headwind rose called Eurocludon. Now, I would have normally pronounced that Euroclidon phonetically, but I downloaded a new program on my computer. It's a Talking Strong's Concordance. It was free with Bible Explorer, which was also free. And so all week I just kept pursing, you know, play, and it would go, Eurocludon and stuff. And so I trust the guy that's in my computer telling me how to pronounce that. <laughs> I didn't have time this week to get any other pronunciation, so I am making up all of these other pronunciations, but I've got Eurocludon down. You know, you're in a pretty bad wind when it has a name. Uh, and so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Running under the shelter of an island called Clouda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. It's never a good situation when you start throwing stuff overboard. And the we here indicates that the sailors weren't, weren't able to accomplish this on their own. They got everybody involved. And so this is a very, very dangerous, disastrous, life-threatening situation, obviously. On one of our famous flights, 
out of the Philippines. You know, when you're thinking, okay, our, maybe we're gonna get home finally. You know, we're leaving Manila, headed to Hawaii. Uh, maybe we could jump ship in Hawaii and get a real airplane, you know, and stuff, because we'd had trouble with this one airplane. I put a mark on the airplane before we disembarked, because I wanted to make sure, I wanted to know if it was gonna be the same airplane that almost crashed on the way over, and sure enough, it was. But you're trusting the Lord. You know, well, you know, we had engine trouble on the way over in Hawaii. And so, oh, you're trusting the Lord, they must have fixed it. Uh, so we're an hour out of Manila in a storm, and uh, all of a sudden the captain comes out, ladies and gentlemen, uh, due to technical difficulties, we will be returning to Manila. Have a nice flight. I thought, well, all right, technical difficulty. We've survived that, we landed in Hawaii, we'll probably land in Manila. And then we were sitting in what's called the bulkhead seating, you know, right, there's a kind of where the door is and stuff, leg room and all that. And so we're sitting there and one of the stewardesses came down and she strapped herself in in front, of, that's where their fold down seats are and she strapped herself in in front of us and she started weeping. About that time, one of the high school kids that was on the trip comes running down the aisle saying, whoa, look, they're dumping the jet fuel. And I look out the window. I'll never sit in bulkhead scene again, by the way. <laughs> Here's the stewardess is crying, and I'm looking out the window, and they, you know, they're, they're shooting fuel out the wing, because that's where they, you know, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> I had some vague understanding that they dump fuel when they're afraid that if you crash, you'll burn uh, and explode. <laughs> And I'm thinking, then I'm wondering if they really know how to calculate how much fuel we even need, you know? Uh, and so uh, it went on from there being pretty, uh, uh, it, it was pretty, pretty wild. Uh, we eventually did land in Manila. We hit the runway so hard that all of the overhead compartments broke and stuff fell all over everybody and people started to scream. And, and, uh, but I'll never forget my favorite part of that story. After we finally landed, and, and got down uh, on the ground and we, you know, people were eh, cheering stuff. A little Filipino woman stood up in the back and she goes, we must unite. We will not fly this airplane again. We must unite. And, and she started like a movement, you know, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right, so. This is a fantastic description of maritime procedure. These were skilled expert sailors, but all of their expertise could not save them. Instead, quite the opposite, it had made them overconfident. They overestimated their own abilities. I'm not saying that the average Christian is smarter than an expert in their field. I am saying we have an eternal perspective and it is that perspective that gives wisdom that the expert may not possess. An expert can be wrong. How many times are there expert witnesses that contradict each other? How many times do the experts have to be wrong, whether they're scientific or medical or in some of these fields where we really do depend on the experts? And so we normally in our normal life I mean, if, if you go to the doctor and he tells you you have, uh, you know, some kind of an infection, don't call us here and ask if that's true. Uh, we don't know. We, we trust the doctor. He's the expert. But there are some times when the experts are wrong and the issue really is more spiritual than it is material or physical, uh, and, and that's what we're talking about. We have an eternal perspective that gives us wisdom. We're not 
to be worried about livelihood and lifestyle and whether or not Fair Havens is the best place to winter. We're to be concerned about the lives of individuals and especially their eternal life. And so in verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. Now, I understand that, but was there a moment in which all hope was given up? I mean, did, did the captain finally get on the radio and say, oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain, all hope has been lost. Please enjoy the rest of your voyage. I mean, you know, was there that moment? You know, I, but anyway, they all understood that, hey, we are going to die. We're just going to die. Now, a non-believer can pursue livelihood and lifestyle into their old age, as I said, and seem to live a comfortable life, but sooner or later, the tempest comes and they will face eternity. Maybe they'll have time to react Probably they won't. People ignore God until they find themselves tossed about by life. Things start falling apart and failing. It is then they need us, and we ought to be ready with expert biblical advice. Paul, in verse 21, after long abstinence from pool, uh, from pool, from food, then Paul stood up in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now, before we get to the second part of that verse, why mention they had not eaten for some time? This would have been a no-brainer for me. Uh, I mean, I, I have to strategize months ahead of time if I'm gonna go on a boat of any kind for any length of time because I get seasick just thinking about it. I'm a little bit seasick right now just reading this story. I just, motion sickness, I think I have something wrong with my ears. But uh, anyway, I get motion sick. I remember, again, in the Philippines, all these really good stories are from the Philippines, by the way. But uh, I knew we were going to have to go across a channel, and there was a good chance we would sink. Uh, and so, but <laughs> before we, sa- if we were going to sink, I wanted to make sure that I, I wasn't seasick. Uh, and so I, 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 I had Dramamine, and I thought, well, I'll just double up. I'll do Dramamine and a patch. And so about 10 minutes into the voyage, I was dried up. I thought my eyes were sand. I didn't realize that when you took those things, it, it dehydrates you. You know, and I was like, ah. <laughs> I was close to death by dehydration. And I was having guys buy me Cokes, which is making it worse because it's all full of sugar. I mean, it was just crazy. as a crazy. I ripped the patch off and I littered, threw it in the ocean. I mean, you know, but it was just, <laughs> just terrible. Uh, and so... So, you know, when, when, when you talk about going on a boat, it's a given that I'm not going to eat anyway. If you're being tossed for day after day after day in a tempest, nobody's eating. Uh, dinner will be served now, you know. And stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. So why even mention that? Well, I, I thought about that for a minute, and I thought maybe the Holy Spirit wants to remind us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. Interesting, it's a grain ship and they're not eating, and all of it, and and the Lord is saying, hey, there's something much more important than the grain ship getting to its harbor, and then them sustaining themselves with food. They're going to die, but for the word of God, and so it's a really exciting kind of a devotional thing. Now then, Paul gets up, and he says, you should have listened to me. I don't believe Paul was saying, I told you so. He probably wished he had been wrong. Ever give people advice? Say, hey, if you do this, I just, I don't think that's gonna work out. And then when things go wrong, are you happy? 
No, you, you, you know, a, a lot of times here we, we say kind of in a, with a black humor, we'll hear something and we'll say, man, I hate, I hate being right all the time. Uh, because you see something and it's headed for disaster and, and you wish that the people would take good, solid biblical advice, but they don't and sure enough, the disaster comes and you wish you were wrong. And you don't really say, I mean, when they call for help, you don't say, well, I told you so and hang up. It's not a tough love situation. So what's Paul doing? I think he's taking them back to the place where he had shared God's wisdom with them. He was showing them that a life led by God gives you true hope rather than false hope. They made a decision. Rather than listen to God and his wisdom, they listened to themselves or to the wisdom of man. And so Paul says, let's go back to that place and start over from there. Because if you had done that, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now. If you want to live for your earthly livelihood and lifestyle, you're going to incur disaster and loss. Eternal life is the abundant life. And so Paul's just bringing them back to a point of departure so that they can understand that there is a better way. And so in verse 22, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Paul based his expert advice on the word of God. In his case, an angel stood by him and gave him an immediate word from God. In ours, we have the written word of God, the Bible. Everything we need in order to advise people is contained in it. Marriage advice, parenting advice, how to get along at work and at school, what kind of citizen you should be in your country, et cetera, et cetera. It's all in the principles and precepts of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. Now in verse 26, he says, however, we must run aground on a certain island. Wow, how is that abundant life? If God really cared for them, why not just calm the storm? Well, he didn't just calm the storm because he had a lesson to teach them. Doing business with God requires faith. Paul said in verse 25, I believe God it will be just as he told me. Later in this chapter, some of the sailors are going to try to escape the ship on their own by secretly launching the lifeboat while no one is watching. Paul's going to say, we're all going to be saved as long as everybody stays on the boat. And these sailors get together and they say, that guy's nuts. Let's sneak to the front of the boat and get off on the skiff and maybe we can save ourselves. And Paul uh, gets wind of this, finds the centurion. He says, ah, you know, we're all going to die if these guys get away with this. And so the centurion orders the skiff uh, cut, you know, the rope so that it just floats out to sea. And so that's the deal here. Paul says, here's what's happening. This is the word of God. Are you going to believe it or not? There, there, there is a decision to be made. Certainly God could calm the storm. Paul could get up as Jesus did in a storm and just speak to it if God had so led. But God decided, no, you're going to go through this storm, the ship is going to be destroyed, and you're going to float ashore, but every person is going to be kept safe if you believe my word. And it required the exercise of, in a sense, saving faith so that they could see who God really was. And so it's an amazing thing. 
They would rather trust their own ways instead of the way of God. And this is the sad thing. So often when people do find themselves in a personal storm, they still want it to be their way. They say, okay, well, I'm coming to you now. You talk to me about God. I want to hear about God. Is God going to save my marriage, my children, my business, whatever it is? Is he just going to do the miracle and make everything all right? And oftentimes I've told people things might actually get worse. Things might get worse. You might suffer the loss of whatever ship you've been trusting in. And, and it requires a, a faith. Do I want to believe in a God like that? Or do I only want a God who gives me what I want? And so it's very interesting people have that decision to make. It's very sad when a person being tossed about in a personal storm will not exercise simple faith in God to get them through it. They'll try to find any other lifeboat out in the world, some expert that will tell them either they don't really need God and his word or that they need more than God and his word. It sounds good. After all, these people are experts, are they not? They have education, they have degrees, they even have the world's recognition. But they don't have Jesus. Or if they do, they don't really rely on him because they think they found a better way. They don't always have the Bible's eternal perspective. They're not always dividing between the soul and the spirit and speaking to the very heart of a person. At best, they're Band-Aids. At worst, they make the problem uh, much more severe. With compassion, you need to go on sharing with storm-tossed travelers the simplicity of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Their needs are essentially spiritual. Their greatest single need is to know the Lord or to know Him better. If you know Him and are walking with Him, you are an expert. That doesn't even mean you have to be an expert on the Bible, that, that you have to know more than you know right now. If you know Christ, you know the living, risen Savior, and you can introduce Him to someone else. And that is the essential need of the human heart and of the human race. And anything beyond that, you can find out. You can get help. You can, you know, uh, discover. And usually people know a lot more than they think they do. There's, I think there's a kind of warfare that goes on when you start to share the Lord or when you're able to, a door opens and you, you're starting to give counsel or advice to somebody. There's a certain warfare that happens where it just immediately the enemy comes and says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the verse. You can't say this. You, who are you to say this? And, and you need to fight through all that and say, hey, who am I? I'm a blood-bought child of God. I stand on solid ground. I may only know that I was blind, but now I see, but that was enough to save me, and it's probably enough for this person. This person that I'm talking to, they don't need a theologian right now. They may never need a theologian. They need a real person who knows the living, risen Jesus Christ, and that's me. And so I'll just tell you what I do know. That's why I love that guy, the blind man that Jesus healed. He says, look, I, you can question me all you want, I don't know what you're asking me, but I know that I was blind a few minutes ago and now I see you figure it out. I'm telling you that I see. And, and, and you know, and there's a warfare on the other end too when a person is reaching out to the Lord, you know, and you start sharing with them that the enemy comes in and he says, ask questions, that can't be true, it's too good to be true. And they say, well, you know, they almost would like to believe it, but then they start to have their own doubts. 
Just work through all that and share the Lord. There's a notable storm at sea in the Old Testament involving a man of God on board a tempest-tossed vessel. You remember who it was? It was Jonah, of course. And there's an interesting comparison and contrast between Jonah and Paul. In Jonah's case, he was the cause of the storm. He was walking in disobedience to God. The sailors had to throw him overboard in order to preserve their physical lives. The moral of the story, we want to be like Paul and not like Jonah. If you're going to pick Bible characters, take Paul. We're the experts, but we need to humble ourselves and walk with God. We need the faith to believe that livelihood and lifestyle are not as important as living for the Lord. I mean, it's one thing to look at non-believers and, and want to say to them, hey, you're living for the wrong things and, and, and your life is headed in the wrong direction, but it's, it's not so powerful if we are also living for the wrong things and headed in the wrong direction. If we're overly interested in our livelihood and our lifestyle, we're going to lose some of that impact. It's too easy to become a Jonah and in a sense to be sleeping on the storm-tossed sea when people are perishing around us. The New Testament is filled with exhortations to awake and to rise up, you that sleep. And really all, it's, all the Lord is saying is, hey, just be a Christian, just be an average, everyday, normal Christian. You don't have to be a missionary, you don't have to be a minister, you just need to be a Christian. You just need to be in love with Jesus Christ and have a heavenly perspective and say, look, when I look at people, I wanna know if they're saved or not because if they're not, they're at a loss for life. They're losing life now. They run the risk of losing everything they're even working for and dreaming of and certainly they're going to lose in the future. They're gonna suffer eternal loss. And so that's all that God is saying is have that perspective on others and it will encourage you to live in such a way that is pleasing to God. Ask the Lord what he wants you to do to reach your mission field and then give biblical answers and advice to any fellow passengers that you encounter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. We appreciate the Apostle Paul. Lord, there in the midst of his uh, explanation to the passengers and the prisoners on that boat, he said that you had given him those people. And that can only mean, Lord, that he'd been praying for them, for their lives and for their safety. Lord, they, they wouldn't take Paul's advice. They uh, maybe even denigrated it, maybe ridiculed it, who knows, but at least they didn't take it. They thought he was no one. Who was he to tell them that they shouldn't be sailing? In response to it, he prayed for them. He prayed diligently, willingly. I'm sure Luke and Aristarchus prayed with him. And in the end, Lord, the angel said that you gave those people to Paul as a result of his compassion for them and his concern for them. He found himself in a place where he could talk about the God whom he serves. And as we'll see as we go on, Lord willing, every life was physically saved and uh, many were touched spiritually as well. And so, Lord, I pray that we would uh, just see ourselves as Paul did, whether people listen to us or not, whether they ever listen to us or not, may we be concerned for them because we know that they have a loss of life going on. Maybe not as obvious 
now as it will be in the future, but sooner or later. And Lord, there are those times, we've all experienced it, when someone finds themselves in the storm and they seek us out. And I pray that we would have the right compassion towards them. That in a sense, we could say, we told you so by bringing them back to a basic and fundamental truth that they were created to know God and to have fellowship with Him. And that whether the storm is miraculously uh, halted or whether they have to go through the storm, they want to have Jesus as their companion. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Guys are here to pray with you and for you or for any needs that might uh, be in your scope of influence. And so come on forward and pray afterwards. The cafe is open. Uh, be a great time to just hang out for a few minutes on campus and get to know some people. Check out the bookstore, especially if you're heading out to the parking lot. Just cruise through the bookstore and see what we've got going in there. There's new merchandise all the time. But it's also a neat place to just share uh, with one another. Uh, this Wednesday night, we're going to have a little bit of special music at our Ignite service. Our friend, Pastor John Mayer, is going to be coming over to do some music for us, as well as our normal Ignite Wednesday night. So that'll be fun. Um, what a blessing just to, to know the Lord and to be known by Him. And, and just, you know, sooner or later, all of the people you know are going to find themselves in some storm. And I pray that we would remember uh, the simple truth that Jesus died to save them and he's coming back for them. And, and we want them to know that. Maybe we don't have every answer they're looking for, but we know the person who does. And really that is the answer. It's, it's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.